Welcome to the first Sunday in December, which doesn't mean a lot to most people. It means a ton to me because that is the first Sunday that we're able to actually celebrate Christmas and not get judgment from somebody. You know, I'm the kind of guy that likes to celebrate Christmas kind of year round, but it's not socially acceptable. And so we have our people out there in the crowd that a lot of times will start celebrating Christmas right after Halloween. Anybody out there after Halloween, you're like, that's when Christmas music is going to be played. Raise your hands like you're proud of it. Come on, it's Christmas time. There's like three people. And so those people are the ones that'll celebrate, but they'll get some judgment from people and people will say, there's another holiday coming. You got to wait till Thanksgiving. And then there are people that'll start celebrating after Thanksgiving. And there are people that'll say, come on, at least wait until December 1st to celebrate Christmas. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is December 3rd, so we can wear Christmas sweaters, we can start talking about the holidays, we can listen to Christmas music and harps and not feel weird about it. And so it's a Christmas season, man. Like, it's, it's exciting, it's magical, it's the time where family can be together, where, where nostalgia can happen, but it's also the time where a lot of gifts are given and received. We give people gifts, we receive gifts, and I was thinking about this last night, that for me, even in the time when it's socially acceptable, I really struggle receiving gifts. You know, I, not even just in the sense that I, I hate opening gifts in front of the person that gave it to me. I'm like, what? Like, stop looking at me, please. But I also struggle with it even when it's socially acceptable because I don't feel like I did anything to deserve that. And I think we as a culture really struggle receiving things that we don't feel like we've earned. Like just this week, I actually had lunch with Bear and we were at Rock House and we were having a good meal and we were about to pay for our meal and the waitress said, hey, your money's not good here because somebody paid for your meal. And it was someone that goes to this church and, and immediately I felt super blessed and super grateful. But my first big thought of surrounding all of that was, but what did I do to deserve that? Like I didn't do anything for him. I felt weird about it. I felt weird trying to receive something that he gave me. And I think we struggle with that as a culture. We struggle receiving things that we really don't feel like we deserve. But it's not even that we struggle receiving things because at the end of the day, if we get a wage from our boss or from something we feel like we've earned, it's, we don't, we're, not, we're not telling our boss like, oh, that's too much. Like I, I should get less. But when it comes to gifts we don't feel like we've earned, we really struggle with it. And I think the root behind that. And that thing that we have in this culture of struggling to receive things, that performance-based gift receiving, I think that same message and that same heart and that same root is found in this story that we just got to read. You know, Bear got to read this parable that Jesus gave. And a, a parable really is just a really simple childlike story to help illustrate a really deep, hard-to-understand thought. And a lot of times Jesus gave these parables so that we could uh, better understand something in his kingdom. And he always, every single time, did it in response to someone's thought, to something someone said, to maybe somebody's sin. And what Jesus gave this parable in response to is these Pharisees at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 were like, hey, like, Jesus is eating with all of these tax collectors and sinners. Like, how can Jesus be doing that? And I love Jesus because Jesus isn't the kind of guy that's going to confront them a lot of times and say, hey, say it with your chest. What do you got to say to me? He looks at them and he says, I have a story to tell you. And if you're around Jesus enough, you know that when he starts telling a parable, I, I'd be the kind of guy that's like, ooh, who's he talking to now? And so he gave some parables in response to these Pharisees' thoughts about eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he gave three 
The first one is he gave at the beginning of Luke 15 the parable of the lost sheep where one sheep goes missing and the, and the shepherd goes to find it. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin where a woman had 10 coins, lost one, swept her whole house to find it. She found it and she rejoiced. And then in this one, he gave the parable of the lost son, but we all know it as the parable of the prodigal son. That's right. But I actually don't like the title, the prodigal son. Because at the end of the day, the main person in this story isn't the prodigal son. The main person in the story also isn't the older brother. The main point of this wasn't someone that was lost and is found. It wasn't someone who was self-righteous. The main person in the story is actually the father. And the main point of it is the no-strings-attached, unconditional invitation of forgiveness that the father so freely and lovingly extended to both of his kids and the two opposite reactions of those free invitations of grace that both of them received. And so, in fact, I don't like the title, The Prodigal Son. In Jewish literature, it's not called The Prodigal Son. I think they have it better. The title that I like better is The Compassionate Father and His Two Sons. And so this morning, we're going to dive into The Compassionate Father and His Two Sons. And I think we, we talk about this a lot here at Fellowship, we always have to understand what's going on in the culture and the culture that this is written in because I think a lot of times we read the Bible under the lens of the American culture that we live in. And when we try to understand the Bible based off of the American culture, the Bible is almost an impossible book for us to understand. We have to know who this is written to, who this is written by. And so some cultural things for us to know about this story that Jesus shared and the culture that he shared it in. And so the son, the younger son, goes to his father and says, I want my share of the property. You see, what this son was saying is he wants his inheritance because that's the kind of inheritance that you would give. A lot of times people were land rich back in the Old Testament. And land was super important because it's very different than our culture. Like I was born in Tampa and now I live in Searcy, Arkansas. That was not common back in that day. If you were born in a city, you would stay in that city. If you were born on a land, you would stay on that land. And what the legacy that this father would have given generations to come was the land that he gave his son. And so what the son was saying is, Father, I do not want to be in your life anymore, and I'm not going to be around when you die, so I would like my inheritance as if you were dead, and you'll never see me again. I mean, think of the pain that that caused the father. He's not just saying, I want my share of the inheritance. He's saying, I'm done with you, and I'm done with this family. I want nothing left to do with you. And so the father, in his compassion, he gave his son his share of the property, and it says that he squandered his property. So not only did he want his father dead, but he also took that property that this father's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren were supposed to live on. The son sold that land to another person, sold that land to another family, took that money and lived a promiscuous lifestyle in another country. It's by the Bible says that there, it was a promiscuous lifestyle with prostitutes. And you understand it's probably a lifestyle that the father and his family would not have been proud of. It says that he squandered all of it. He ran out of money. He ended up, instead of going back home to his father, he went to go feed the pigs. He lived amongst the pigs. He fed the pigs and he ate what the pigs ate. And there comes a moment in this son's life where he goes, what am I doing? Like I'm eating pig slop. 
Like my father's servants wouldn't have even have lived like this. And he comes to the conclusion, I'm going to go to my dad and beg him to be a servant of his. And so he starts conjuring up this thing that he's going to tell his dad, which all of us have done at one point or another with our parents, some of us with our bosses. We get in trouble and we're like, okay, this is what I'm going to say to get myself out of this. Anyone? Anyone ever do that? I did that one time. (laughs) I dated a girl in high school that uh, my dad said was geographically undesirable. And I was like, daddy, you just don't understand we're in love. And so she lived 50 minutes away from me and I would always spend time with her and her family on Sunday. I'd go spend church, I'd spend church with them. I'd spend all day with them. And I had a curfew of 11 p.m. Now here's something you need to know about this story. My parents are like, this is the way it's going to be. And if it's not going to be that way, we're going to have words. And so that doesn't mean 1101. That doesn't mean 1059, 59. That means like you're home by 11. <laughs> and so I knew this. And one night I was just so in love. I wasn't paying attention to the clock. And my girlfriend's dad says, hey, Ben, what time are you supposed to be home? And I was like, 11 o'clock, sir. He goes, ooh, you better get a move on because it's 1040. Remember, it takes 50 minutes to get home. I just go, oh, my goodness. Like, can I live here now? Can I be your son? I'll stop dating your daughter if, you can be, if I can be your son. Like, I'm going to die if I go home. So I get in my car. I put my shoes on. I'm running. I'm doing math in my head. I'm a math guy. I'm like, I have to go 185 miles an hour to get home. Oh man, like, and I'm 17 and invincible, but my car can't go 185 miles an hour. And the whole way home, I'm rehearsing. Mom and dad, I just want to tell you, I know I'm late and I'm so sorry for that. And you can ground me for that if you'd like. But mom, how can I hear, how can I see the time when I hear the wedding bells? Like this, this girl's the one for me. I'm like, no, that's too sappy. I'm coming up with what I'm going to say so that when I get in the house, they're not going to say anything. I'm like, no, 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 I understand. I understand. I'm late. And here's what I want to say to you. Like, you know, that's what the son was doing in this story. Father, I just want to tell you, I sinned against heaven and earth. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I know that. But treat me as one of your hired servants. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But maybe I should put more inflection on the servant. Maybe I should, you know, be on my hands and knees, kissing his feet. He's rehearsing this. He's practicing this trying to talk his dad into welcoming him back in the house. So he gets there, he's walking to the house, and he sees this person running after him when he gets close to his house. Now, another cultural thing, it was very shameful and incredibly rare for older men to run. They're either running away from danger or they're running to something to create danger. Has anyone ever had a parent run at them before? When I was 11... I told my mom to, under my breath, didn't think she could hear me. My mom apparently has supersonic hearing. I said, shut up, woman. (laughs) Ah. And my 44-year-old mother turned into a 40-yard dash Olympic runner and sprinted after me. To this day, the most terrifying thing I have ever seen. My mom's like, I don't remember that. It happened, mom. And so I don't know what's going through the son's mind. Like, is he going to kill me? Am I dead? Like, is this the end of the road for me? And here's the deal. Like, we know the father, based off of what he did when he got there, it says that he embraced him and he kissed him. And it's the, the word for uh, embrace is, actually means to fall on top of. Like, it's like the dad ran and never stopped running and tackled him and is like kissing him on top of him. But also there's some things that a friend of mine got to reveal to me kind of blew my mind this week. A lot of theologians believe that he didn't just run after him because he was excited to see him. You see, it wasn't, it was very uncommon for a a son to do what this son did, uh, but it, it happened. 
And you see a lot of times when this would happen in that culture, when they would take their inheritance and leave, they would have a ceremony basically insinuating that you're no longer dead. You're not only dead to the family, but you're also dead to this community. And you see, if that person ever came back, the community had every right to shame and even stone that son or daughter that left. And so a lot of theologians believe that that father was running after the son, not only because he was excited to see him, but that father was running after his son because he was trying to get to his son before the community did. He was trying to save the son from humiliation. He was trying to save the son from all the things that the community would have done to him. So salvation was on the father's mind before the son even said a single word. And so the father gets there, he's kissing him, he's doing all these things. And you see, there's a difference between what the son was rehearsing and conjuring up and what he actually said. He says, he rehearses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And when he gets to the father, he says this. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And it stops. He doesn't say, I he doesn't let him know that he says, he doesn't tell him he wants to be one of his hired servants. And it's as if the father is listening to this son and what the son is saying is so preposterous to him that he cuts him off. He says, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And the the father probably goes, amen, that's what you've done. And then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's as if the father is like, I'm gonna stop you right there. Like you're not gonna continue. And it seems that the father changes the subject because he cuts him off, doesn't let him finish his rehearsed speech. And then he looks at one of the servants seemingly changing the subject saying, hey, go grab a robe and put it on him. Go get a ring and put it on his finger. Go get sandals and put it on his feet. Go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a feast because my son who was lost is found and my son who is dead is alive again. It seems random, but it's not. The father didn't change the subject and randomly start talking about how he's going to accessorize his son. The father actually talks to the son and answers the son based off of what he said to the servant. He told the servant to grab a robe and put it on him. And you see, the robe was very significant back in that day. If you would give somebody a robe, it signified honor. A ring signified authority. Sandals weren't worn by servants. People who were slaves didn't wear sandals because sandals signified freedom. And so the father was saying, here is freedom. And so what the father was doing actually is the father was letting him know that the honor that he had before, he got back in full. The authority that he had before, he got it back in full. The freedom that he had before, he got it back in full. And all of this was with no strings attached. It's not like the father said, here are all of these things, and then I just need to make sure you promise, please don't ever do this again, and maybe go buy back that land that was supposed to be my legacy. He doesn't give a, hey, why don't you come in and sit in my office so I can give you a speech? None of it had any strings attached to it. It was as if the son had no rebellion in the first place, reinstated not only back to what he was before, the son was reinstated back to who he was before. The reason that he could be reinstated back to all of those things is because it's as if the father was saying, yes, you are my son, and you have never stopped being my son. You are my son when you were lost. 
You were my son when you stole that inheritance. You were my son when you were dead. But there is time for us to celebrate because you were once lost, but now you are found. You were once dead, but you have been made alive. And what the father did here is the father fully, 100% forgave his son for the sin that he had done. It's as if the father was saying, what sin? What rebellion? You're my son now, you were my son then, and you will always continue to be my son. But you see, here's the thing that I think is hard for us to understand. I think this is the thing in the story that gets most overlooked. You see, the son, the father not only forgave the son, but the son also accepted the robe, accepted the ring, accepted the robe. You see that the son attends the feast because, yeah, the father forgave him. And I think we know that in the story. We know that in life. We know that we know that we know that because of Jesus, God has forgiven us of all of our sin. He has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. But what the son shows by accepting all of these things is that not only has he been forgiven, but he embraces the forgiveness of the father. But you see that condemnation and that punishment that, the, that we feel a lot of times in sin, that's where the son was before he came home. You know, he saw that it would be better for him to eat the slop of pigs than it would be for him to go home because that's what sin does to us. It's not just in this story, but it's in all of our lives. Sin causes irrational thinking because that's what the devil wants to do. The devil plants these seeds of doubt in our minds. He plants these seeds of, do we really belong? And he's telling us these little lies about ourselves, lies about how other people view us, lies about where we belong and where we don't belong. And the longer we stay in darkness and the longer that that sin is not exposed to the light, the deeper the roots become, the bigger that plant of lies and doubts is, and the more fruit that it starts producing. And we start believing in that atmosphere of shame, we start believing the things in the light, that, things in darkness that we never would have believed in the light. Shame not only becomes something that we feel, shame becomes something that we are. And you see, that happened with the sun. This son is so deep in his sin. He's living a life, I guarantee you, that if he would have months ago been able to get in a time machine and see where he was now, he would have never believed he'd do any of those things. Because you see, that's what sin does. I mean, I've been there more times than I can count where it starts slow. It's one mistake and you're like, ah, that's a slip. And then it's another mistake. Ah, that's a little bit bigger of a slip. And then all of a sudden, in a few short weeks, we're sliding and living a life that we never thought we would ever live because that's what sin does. Sin takes you further than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. You see, what the son's proposal shows us is that shame has just become who he is. We see in the son's proposal that even though the son desires the father's house because of shame and because of the irrationality that's caused in sin, we see that he desires the father's house, but he doesn't understand the father's heart. Even so that he asks to be a hired servant. 
You see, there were two kinds of servants back in this day. There was the bond servant and there was the hired laborer, the hired servant. You see, the bond servant was the people that were seen as part of the family. They lived in the household. They, they were seen literally as a family member. They were not seen as a slave. And almost every single time you see slaves be set free back in the Old Testament in the year of Jubilee, Almost every time you read about it, they end up becoming, say, I want to continue to be a slave. I want to continue to be in this household because you guys are my family. He's not asking the father to be a bondservant. He's asking the father to be a hired laborer, which hired laborers could be dropped in a, in a flip of a hat. He's telling his dad, like, even if it's just for a few weeks, I want to live in your household. He doesn't understand the father's heart. He doesn't see himself of worthy of love. He doesn't see himself worthy of a family or worthy of a home because shame has this uncanny ability to change. I've done a bad thing to I am a bad person. Shame dictated his worth and shame dictated his value. And because of that shame, he didn't feel worthy to go back home to the father. And so the question is this, how do we fight that? How do we fight self-condemnation? How do we fight not wanting something that we don't feel like we deserve? And you see, we have to do what the son did. We have to come to the conclusion that the son came to. That it's not about us. It's not about our works. It's not about what we do. And at the end of the day, we've never been good enough. At the end of the day, we didn't deserve God's love. We didn't deserve that gift. That's what the son came to the conclusion of. I mean, Paul says it in Romans chapter seven. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We have to come to the conclusion that by ourselves, who we are in the flesh, who we are outside of the grace of God, outside of the love of God, like we are, we are dirty and we are grimy and there is nothing that we could ever deserve to, to deserve the love of this father. And here's the key about what the son did though. Yeah, the son lived a dirty and grimy life. But here's the key about releasing ourselves from, the, from condemnation. The son ended up taking his eyes off of himself, taking his eyes off of what he did, and he took his eyes from himself and he took it to the father and he stopped focusing on his own sin and he focused on the father's love and he focused on the father's forgiveness. Because if the son would have continued looking at himself, the son would have said, I'm not worthy of that. Like, you're right, I'm not worthy to be your son. I, I dishonored you, I stole from you, I wish you were dead. But he stopped looking at that and he started looking at the Father because that's what grace is supposed to do. Grace is supposed to take our eyes off of ourselves completely. And what grace does is it takes us from looking at our sin and our power and moves us to look at God's infinite power and God's infinite love. Because once we put our faith in Jesus, the question isn't if God is going to forgive us. The question is, do we live as if we've been forgiven or not? Grace tells us we weren't deserving of life, but we were deserving of condemnation. My favorite chapter in the entire Bible is Ephesians chapter 2. 
And I love it because the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 talks about who we were before Jesus. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were following Satan. We were following the world. We were by nature children of wrath. Romans chapter 7 says that we were enemies of God. But in in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, it's my favorite verse in the entire Bible. It says, but God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us. That's what grace is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. We were dead, and what can a dead man do? The answer to that question is nothing. Dead men can do nothing, but God saw us, and because of his love, and because of his mercy, and because of the forgiveness that he has, he looked at us and says, I'm not okay with that, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's the things that we need to focus on, not ourselves, not what we do, not our works, but everything and what Jesus has done. Because grace looks at the finished work of Christ, self-condemnation looks as if grace never finished anything. You see, that's the younger son. But that's not how the older son lives. You see, the younger son took his eyes off himself, but the older son wasn't able to. In fact, he hears about his brother who was lost, who was dead to the family. He heard that he was back. He heard music and dancing and all that stuff going on in the house from far away in the fields, which I think is funny. Like, that's how loud the music was. Finds out that that party is because of his brother, and there is zero joy with the older son. He's not happy about it. He's not kind of happy about it. In fact, he's livid. He's so upset that the younger son, his younger brother, has come home. He has unforgiveness in his heart. He has resentment in his heart for his younger brother. And all of that kept this older son from experiencing the joy and the abundant life that the father was trying to provide to him. But you see, this resentment, this unforgiveness that this older brother had it wasn't rooted in what the younger brother had done. It's not rooted in the fact that the younger brother, his younger brother caused shame on the family. It wasn't rooted in the hurt that he caused his father. You see, when the father comes out to him wondering why he's not celebrating with everybody else, the son says this in verse 29. He says, look these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. You see, this resentment, this unforgiveness isn't rooted in the younger brother. The root of this resentment is found in the fact that his younger brother was receiving the reward that he felt he deserved. That party, that's supposed to be for me, dad. Look what I've done. Look how I served you. I didn't go anywhere. And he went, he, he devoured your property. He should be the outcast. And he comes back and all of a sudden it's all forgiven. He's upset because he felt like he deserved that party. Because being the older brother makes us not forgive other people because we're so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on what we've done. And we become so focused on ourselves that we forget the amount of times that we've been forgiven much that we don't even focus on that. And we're focusing on ourselves and we're saying, I'm not going to give the forgiveness that I've been given. I'm going to hold back. Because I deserve it. Because I deserve all these things to me. This person doesn't deserve that kind of forgiveness. 
You see, we can't even begin to understand grace when we're worshiping and living under the chains and the bonds of legalism. Which I will tell you, legalism is incredibly prevalent here in Searcy, Arkansas. It's incredibly prevalent in the American church. It's incredibly prevalent in the Bible Belt. This idea that we can do anything to earn the love of God. The idea that we can do things to make us fall out of grace and to fall out of love. You see, not only is that ideology toxic, but that ideology is the very opposite of the message of Jesus. It's the very opposite as to why Jesus came in the first place. And what Jesus is telling these Pharisees who are perked up saying he's eaten with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, what Jesus is telling them in this parable is it doesn't matter what your status is. Yeah, yeah, like you are the chosen people of God. Yes, you're religious leaders. Yes, you have the law. Yes, you have the prophets. Yes, you look the part. But that's not what saves you. What you do does not make you in better standing with me. That's not what gets you entry into this banquet that I'm talking about in this parable. It's not about you. That's why the older brother was so set off by the party that the father was throwing the younger brother. His legalism told him, well, what did he do to deserve that? Dad, look at me. I've done all the things. I'm working hard. I'm the good son. What does he do? What did he do to deserve? Because when the people that we look at, that we feel like we're better than and doesn't, don't do as much of us, when they start receiving the things that we're working so hard to receive under the bonds of legalism, it frustrates us because we feel like I'm working hard. I should be the one at that party, not that person. It's very, you gotta do, you gotta do, you gotta do because legalism forces us to compare. Legalism makes us feel less deserving of condemnation than the people who don't look as good as us. And at the end of the day, legalism is the very opposite of grace. Let's take it home. You see, grace forces us to take our eyes off of what we've done. And what this parable is about is, yes, it's about a compassionate father and his love to his two sons. But what it's really about is it's about the two opposite reactions to free invitations of grace. You see, the younger brother took his eyes off his works. He took his eyes off himself. Because if he would have kept looking inward and looking at himself, he would have never felt worthy to be in the father's house again. He would have never felt worthy to have the robe and the ring and the sandals and the party. I've done too much. I've outrun the love of my father. But you see, he stopped focusing on himself and he started living in light of grace and living in light of forgiveness. He started living as if he had been forgiven. Because he stopped focusing on himself and he focused on the love of a father. But that's not what the older brother did. The older brother kept looking inward. He kept looking at himself. He thought he worked so hard to deserve the father's love and acceptance. And now the father extended forgiveness to his younger brother who was undeserving. He was so caught up in resentment and legalism that he was focusing so much on his younger brother that he wasn't focusing on himself and realizing that he also needed an invitation to the banquet as well. 
He was so focused on his legalism that he didn't feel like that he needed forgiveness too. Because even though the younger brother and the older brother's sin outwardly manifested differently, they're both in the same place, both needing an invitation to the banquet. The younger brother accepted because he came to the end of himself. The older brother rejected because he couldn't get over himself. You see, that's what it means to live in light of the gospel. That's why Doug is always saying, like, we don't grow further away from the gospel. We just continue to grow deeper in the gospel. The gospel isn't an elementary principle. It's, it's not that all of a sudden, like, we're saved, and it's like, let's move away from that to things with more meat and more sustenance. Like, the gospel isn't baby formula. The gospel is a never-ending feast of incredible depth, incredible understanding, and we don't grow away from that. We continue to grow deeper in that. And, and I always like to tell people, it's a lot like this chart right here. Where in the very beginning, when we first are converted, there comes a point where we know that there is a gap between our sinfulness and the holiness of God. And there needs to be something that bridges that gap. And the thing that bridges that gap when we start believing the gospel for ourselves is the cross bridges that gap. Jesus and what he did for us bridges the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. But that's not the end of it. If we just stay there, the cross stays really small. And as we continue to grow and as we continue to fall more in love with Jesus, the goal of all of that then is for us to go, man, like I'm way more sinful than I ever imagined. And God is way more holy than I ever imagined. Now all of a sudden the gap is bigger and the gap is bigger. And because the gap is bigger, the cross needs to be bigger. And we continue going through life. And as we get older and as we fall more in love with Jesus, we realize even more the depravity of our sin and realize even more the holiness of God. The goal is for that gap to get bigger and when that gap continues to get bigger the cross gets bigger and the bigger the cross is the more we live in light of it that's what it means to grow deeper in the gospel that's what the younger brother did he came to the end of himself but the older brother couldn't get over it because he felt like there wasn't a gap he felt like what he did bridged that gap to the father And when the cross is bigger, the bigger it is, the more we live in light of the gospel, the more we love people that are hard to love, the more we love people who are even enemies of ours, because while we were enemies of God, he reconciled us to him. We serve with no strings attached because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we're living in light of that cross, when we're living in light of the gospel, we forgive much because we have been forgiven much. You see, that's what this is all about. This feast that's talked about is is comparing it to the the marriage supper of the Lamb in, in Revelation chapter 19. And the way we react to this invitation, what we choose to do with that invitation, decides if we're going to be the younger brother and attend the feast, or we're going to be the older brother and we're going to be on the outside looking in. And so there's two choices that we have. The first one is we can live in light of forgiveness. We can take our eyes off ourselves and look back to the Father who ransomed us, who saved us, and who loves us with no strings attached. Or we can be like the older brother and we can take our eyes and keep them on ourselves and stay out of the banquet. And so my challenge is this. The next time someone does something nice, the next time you get a gift, the next time someone pays for your meal, I think that's a perfect time to be reminded that you're right, I didn't deserve this. And that's a perfect time for us to turn our eyes back to Jesus and to say, Jesus, I also didn't deserve you. When we get gifts here in this Christmas time, it can be a reminder 
that it's not about us and it's all about the love of a father. Let's stand and sing our last song. For those that have wandered, I just, I, I feel this stir in me. There comes a moment in all of our lives where, we, where our eyes are open to who Jesus is. It says that God opens the eyes. God is the one that changes lives. God is the one that, that, that changes hearts and molds hearts. And if there is anyone here where your eyes have been opened, I need you to know that if you've, if you've wandered, the Father is running after you with salvation in mind. Community, the community may shame you. People in your family may shame you. You may have a past that you feel like is irreconcilable. Well, that father sees you. He doesn't see you as too far gone. Salvation is on his mind, and he wants to save you. Not only from that, he wants to save you from that condemnation and shame. And so if that is you, if your eyes have been opened, man, I'm right here at the end. Like, we don't just stay up here to high-five people and to kiss each other like we, we we stay up here so we can be there for you we can pray for you we have our elders and their wives up here like please like if you came in today and your eyes were closed and your eyes have just been open and you want to come home I will tell you like let's talk about it because it can happen right now because the father is running after us we have an invitation both invitations we get to choose if we live in light of it or we don't we have communion on both sides for those people who have come home this is a feast this is a reminder of what jesus has done for us please come that's very important for you to come and take uh, but you guys know what to do now go love first we love because he first loved us have a great week of worship fellowship